if we haven't met yet, my name's uh, Matthew, I'm the Associate Pastor here, welcome along uh, this morning, I'm very glad you're here. We're uh, in our second week of the book of Isaiah, so we're doing Isaiah chapter 2, so keep that bit of the Bible open on page 680. Um, please, uh, please, please join me as we uh, pray and, and get into God's Word together today. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you are a God who has spoken uh, through the prophets, including uh, the prophet Isaiah. We pray today that we would listen attentively to what you have to say through him, through the words written here. Please give us a vision today of your kingdom. Please help our hearts to desire it more. Uh, and Please help us to uh, be amazed at your grace and the things that you have waiting for us. Amen. Well, today I'm giving you a, a sermon about end times prophecy. Uh, the technical terms, eschatology, last days stuff. Uh, I don't know what you think about that. Maybe you've come across some of that sort of thing before. Um, you, there's probably a wide variety of things you could have come across that, that's being called uh, last times teaching or end times prophecy and that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of disagreement around these things. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very silly nonsense out there. There's a lot of destructive nonsense out there on this topic. Um, I often find there's two ends of the spectrum uh, when you bring up these sorts of topics. At one end of the spectrum, you've got people who just want to ignore it. You bring up end times prophecy, um, that kind of stuff. Um, you're just like, I, I don't want to know about that. It's not something I'm interested in. It's actually a really colossal mistake to have that attitude, by the way. Uh, here's why. Because Jesus Christ was an end times teacher. That, that's all he spoke about. He spoke about the kingdom of God. That's an end times teaching. All he spoke about was end times, last days stuff. But the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who uh, find specific prophetic foretellings of the future and of interpreting present events in the world um, everywhere, all over the place. Everything's a prophecy about what's happening in our day now. And we know that Jesus will return in our generation because this thing happened and there's some obscure reference in this prophet or this thing happened and that's a sign. That, that sort of end of the spectrum as well. Um, I want to give you a couple of examples of that kind of thing, both from the Bible and outside the Bible, uh, so you get a feel for what I mean. Um, this is my, uh, when I get to the slide, my favourite band is a band called Dream Theatre. Uh, is anybody into Dream Theatre? Probably not. Uh, does anybody heard of Dream Theatre? My, my wife has, a few people have. Dream, Dream Theatre is a progressive rock band. Progressive means the time signatures change regularly, so uh, it could be 4 4, 3 4, then it's 9 8 time, it could be 25 32 time. It's crazy stuff. These guys are some of the finest musicians in the world, and they write epic songs, right? So they can go up for half an hour. There's some similarities to classical music, it's like a, a, a massive vision of music, of what they're trying to create, uh, and it's got prog beats and that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's awesome. Um, they've been going through since 1985. Um, a really important album for them was an album in 1999 called Scenes from a Memory. Um, Scenes from a Memory is kind of a concept album. It tells a story, and it was a, musically it was an incredible accomplishment for them, and it, it was a rise in popularity and that sort of thing for them as well. Um, and so they decided to record a live album. I've got the album, I've got the DVD of it. Um, that album, the, the, the concept album, came out in 1999, and so they did their tour... Uh, they are from New York. Uh, they are New Yorkers. They love the city of New York. Here's the cover of the album they released. They recorded it in New York um, because of uh, thematic reasons, basically. They called it Live Scenes from New York. Scenes from memory. This is Live Scenes from New York. And you'll see in the middle here, there's a burning apple with the New York, New York skyline. Zoom in, and you'll see the New York skyline. Right in the middle there, you've got the Twin Towers burning. This album 
was released on September 11, 2001, just before the planes hit the building. Now, is that prophecy or is that nasty coincidence? I think it's nasty coincidence. I mean, they were horrified. Um, they're New Yorkers. They love the city of New York. And they were horrified this was on sale, and so they recalled it all. If you can get your hands on a, a, a live album that has this logo on the front cover, uh, it's a collector's item now. So if you get one, give it to me, because I'd love to have it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they recalled the thing. Uh, I don't think that's prophecy at all. It's just a nasty coincidence. But some people say that's prophetic. Uh, here's an example from the Bible. This is from the, the book of Jeremiah. Um, some people would say this is about September 11. Uh, it says, take up your positions around Babylon. Babylon in the Bible is often a, a symbol for an evil city that's opposed to God, uh, not just the literal Babylon, so uh, fair enough. Take your positions around Babylon, all you who draw the bow. Shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she sinned against the Lord. Shout against her on every side. She surrenders, her towers fall, her walls are torn down, since this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. Do, not, uh, do to her as she has done to others. I think you can see immediately how people might want to take that as an interpretation from God's perspective of what's happening on September 11, and people did. Uh, where's the control here, though? Is, is that referring to September 11? What are these prophets talking about in the Bible? So some people find end times events in, in, in uh, interpretations of events in our world all over the Bible, um, often with not much control and interpretation, I would, I would suggest to you, but you might want to say that's kind of the prophet's fault. <laughs> Here's why it's kind of the prophet's fault, or it might seem that way. Um, part of the problem is the prophets are really deliberately vague on the timing of what they're talking about. They tell us exactly when these events will happen, and here's what they keep saying. Here's when the events will happen. In the last days. If you read the book of Isaiah, he will say that like hundreds of times. In the last days, this will happen. Or in those days, or on that day. That's real specific, hey? <laughs> on that day, blah, 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 blah. Like the, the bit we just heard from Jeremiah. A time in the future, this will occur. Also, not just the timing, but many of the prophecies themselves are vague. They're in uh, kind of picture language. And so they sound kind of, sort of like whatever you kind of, sort of like, want them to sound like. You look at an event... And you go, this prophecy kind of sounds like that, and so it's about that. And so people will say, this bit here is about ISIS, and this bit here is about September 11, and this bit here is about Tony Abbott blowing his nose. Like, it's whatever you want, because you take a picture and it seems to apply. So we've got to think clearly about the way the prophets talk. What's up with the way Isaiah likes to talk? I want us to have a careful think about that before we get into this end times vision that, uh, that he presents to us in chapter 2, okay? Uh, we have a reading program, by the way, as a church. And we just started reading the book of Isaiah yesterday. Um, <clears throat> I think what I'm about to tell you will be extraordinarily helpful for you uh, reading the book of Isaiah. I read the entire book this week. It is a mind-blowing book. Gosh, if you haven't been amazed at what God has in store for you in his kingdom, read the book of Isaiah. Start reading it with us. So grab the reading program, get into it. I think this will help you understand it, though. Here's the claim I want to make about what Isaiah is talking about, and the prophets, for, for that matter. Isaiah and the prophets are not prophesying about current events today. They're not. Not at all. Well, not specifically. Applying what Isaiah says to what you read in the newspaper specifically is always a mistake and a misunderstanding of the Bible. Always. That is not what Isaiah is talking about. 
What the prophets have to say relates to our world now in lots of general ways. As we see nations rise and fall and how God, what God thinks of them and how his judgment and his grace relates to them and how we'll see people turning to Jesus. But it isn't telling us specifically in obscure ways about political events of the 21st century. If you want to see what it's about, like what's Isaiah about it? It kind of operates at two levels. It's talking about the events facing Israel in Isaiah's day, which is the 8th century BC, so the 700s BC, that is. Um, Secondly, it's teaching us about the future salvation that Jesus will bring when he returns. And often those things overlap. So it gets, there's kind of two levels that overlap. There's uh, the things about uh, Isaiah's day, and they teach us as well about the salvation that Jesus is bringing. You say, oh, this is a bit absolute, Matt. How do you know that Isaiah isn't prophesying about the 21st century particularly? Because the New Testament quotes Isaiah hundreds of times and shows us how to read Isaiah. Uh, I'm not going to go into that now, but... That's, that's why. Now, to understand Isaiah, we need to know where he fits into the Bible. If you've got a Bible there, it's going to be handy to have like a physical Bible. I like physical books still. Um, we're going to have to think a bit, um, but I think you'll find this immensely helpful. Um, the, the Bible is split into Old and New Testament, right? So the New Testament is the bit about Jesus. It's about when Jesus comes and the last days happen because Jesus has come and he brings the kingdom with him. Um, the bit before that, the bigger section, is called the Old Testament. Now, if we split the Old Testament in two halves at a very uh, strange point in the story, I'm going to split it into the history of Israel and the prophetic era. Um, this isn't that unusual, but Genesis... Um, sorry if that's too small. Genesis to 1 Kings chapter 10 is the first half of the Old Testament, and then 1 Kings chapter 11 to Malachi is the second half, and that's the, the bit where the prophets dominate, and that's where Isaiah's from. Now, um, why the split in the middle of 1 Kings? We just did our series on 1 Kings. He's a difficult question for you. Can anybody remember what happens in 1 Kings 10 or 11 that might be really significant? What, what's something really significant that happens in 1 Kings that's kind of like world-shattering? Uh, any ideas? We had a temple. We had King Solomon. Sorry? You, you're cheating, are you? Is that what? I can't hear in this room. Israel splits in half? Yeah, oh, it's just after that. Yeah, the, the thing happens that means Israel splits in half. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're pretty much right. What happens in, uh, up to chapter 10 of 1 Kings is the rise of Israel. Chapter 8, the temple is built and Solomon dedicates it. And that is the height of Israel. Well, it's not quite the height of Israel because chapter 10, the nations start coming to Israel to hear about Israel's God. The Queen of Sheba comes to Israel and they're starting to do their job and the world is getting to know about the living God because Israel is testifying clearly. This is the height of Israel. Chapter 11, pit of your stomach. Solomon loved foreign wives and worshipped their gods instead. And from that moment onwards, Israel is in decline. They go down the toilet. There's no coming back from that point. It's all decline from that moment. And then what comes to dominate the story are these guys called prophets. There's prophets beforehand, but the prophets become more prominent. And the prophets start talking about a new topic. They start talking about the last days. They start talking about the promised future that God has in store for his people, even though Israel's going down at the moment. On those days, in those days, in the last days, these things will happen. God has an incredible future salvation for Israel that we are faithfully to wait for, is what the prophets start preaching. So when they say, in the last days, in those days, it isn't an invitation to speculate and try and do a last time's calendar and, and interpret the bits in your newspaper about where does this relate to Isaiah and that sort of thing. It's an invitation to faithfully wait and look to the future for what God is bringing for his people. Now, 
Here's the thing I want you to understand, though, and the reason why it's important that this history bit at the beginning, the rise of Israel, why is that important? Here's the main thing I want you to understand about what Isaiah is doing, okay? Uh, when uh, the prophets taught about the future salvation, the way they did it was by constantly referring back to the big events of Israel's past. Basically, what the prophets do is they paint pictures of the future. When they paint pictures of the future that God's promised... They use the elements of Israel's past to paint the picture. So if you, need to, you want to understand the pictures that Isaiah's painting, you need to understand the things he's referring to in the past. So here's the main elements of Israel's past that that part of the Bible talks about. Um, obviously, God created the world. He made it very good. The great act of deliverance in the Old Testament. God saved his people out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, made them his people. He established a covenant with them, a relationship with them at Sinai. He gave them the laws; so they would know how to live as his people. He gave them the promised land, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them a king, a king of the line of David, who would have a dynasty, who would rule justly. And David did rule quite justly until his ancestors did a very bad job. A Jerusalem, they, they had the city of Jerusalem, David's city, on Mount Zion, on the city of God. And they had the temple inside that, uh, that city, Jerusalem, where God lives among his people and it will be a centre of mission to introduce the world to the true and living God. Now, the, what the prophets are saying is, what's Israel's promised future going to look like? It's going to look like all of those things, except far bigger, far better, such a grander version of those things that you can hardly imagine it. It's going to be those things turned up to 11. Basically, what they're promising is, all of those things, put the word new in front of them. That's the, that's, that's the future that God has in store for his people. God created the world. You wait till you see his new creation. My goodness. That exodus where God saved a people of slaves out of Egypt, you wait till you see the scale of the new exodus where God leads people out of slavery to sin and death and his judgment. It'll be on a scale that you can barely fathom. And people of all nations will join that exodus, and even Egyptians will join that exodus, Isaiah will tell us. You thought that first covenant established an unparalleled relationship between God and people? Wait till you see the new covenant. You get the pattern. Just you cannot... These are, these are images of the enormous thing that God's doing in the future. There's a heavenly Jerusalem. There's going to be a day where the temple is all of creation, and God's people live in his presence directly, and so on. Friends, incidentally, this is why we read and preach the entire Bible, because it all fits together. You go to Jesus, and what Jesus keeps doing is, oh, this is just the summary, go read Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah, go read Isaiah and you'll get the details. And so you go read Isaiah, and Isaiah keeps referring to these events of Israel's past, going, okay, this is, this is kind of vision of the future, but you need to understand the past a bit better to, to get a richer idea of what I'm talking about that's going to come when Jesus comes. You see, there's, there's kind of three stages. There's Israel's past there's the prophets pointing us forward to this promised future that's coming, and we know the answer is Jesus, this third, the third time, the time that uh, we can see from where we stand now. Now, I'm sure you noticed, Isaiah doesn't just preach salvation in the last days, though. He preaches there'll be judgment too. And it's very important to notice that. In fact, often the bulk of a, a, a given chapter will be about judgment. You just heard chapter 2 um, talked about salvation, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And the, the rest of the chapter, apart from a couple of little bits, is mostly about judgment to come alongside it. 
Um, in Isaiah, judgment and sin are intertwined on almost every page. And because they're, they're not um, disconnected, unrelated things, they actually rely on each other. Why, why is the world messed up? How can God make the world good? Well, to make it good, you need to bring judgment to clean up the mess to remake the, the world and make it good. You actually have to purge, purify. You have to destroy what is evil. You have to fix it in order to come to salvation, the good new heavens, new earth. And so judgment and salvation are intertwined all the way through the book of Isaiah. So if you want a summary of what the book of Isaiah is about, I would say Isaiah is about God promising to bring salvation through judgment. Uh, salvation through judgment. If you have that in your head, uh, it'll probably help you as we, we, we go through the book. Now, you've, um, you've, you've got your Bible there in front of you, I hope. Have a look at chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read chapter 2, 2 to 4 again, and see if uh, you can see what he's doing in the terms of what I've just painted on the screen there. Um, chapter 2, 2 to 4. In the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream into it. Many peoples will come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now there's a picture of God's promised future that Isaiah's painted, and he's referred to a bunch of stuff from Israel's past. Can you, have you noticed some things there? What, what have we noticed from Israel's past that he's referred to in the passage? Hopefully I can hear from him. I find it very hard hearing from stage, but we'll try. Um, can you see anything there that is, is on the screen, basically, from Israel's history, some of the really important things in Israel's past? The temple, yep. The law from Zion, yep. So the law God's ways will, will be preached and go out to the nations. And the temple, by the way, is supposed to be a mission center to the nations. So it, it was for Solomon, that's what he prayed about in 1 Kings chapter 8. So it's the fulfillment of that. Jerusalem, by the way, is on Mount Zion. So when you see Zion, it's the mountain that Jerusalem's on. And so that's kind of the same thing. And, and, and so Jerusalem's here and people are flocking to Jerusalem because of the temple is. Um, there's one there that uh, I haven't put on screen. Promises to Abraham. Through Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. That's exactly what's going on here. It's being fulfilled. He's painting a picture of it happening. Now, I'm choosing my language pretty carefully. He's painting a picture of what God would bring through Jesus in the last days. The reason I say painting a picture is because it's not just literal. A lot of the elements in his picture are symbolic. Uh, He's not claiming that one day you will see this scene happen and be part of that thing to this enormous mountain. A lot of the things are are, are symbolic. For example, the the scale of the mountain. Um, Sorry. uh, This this here is a a picture of um, Mount Zion. It doesn't look like much of a mountain, but there it is. Um, That's the Temple Mount, by the way, today. Um, and it's on Mount Zion. Uh, it's not a very high mountain. Uh, it's from the Mount of Olives, the photo, and the Mount of Olives is actually higher than Mount Zion. You kind of look down on the temple a, a little bit. Now have a look at chapter 2, verse 2 again, about what will happen in the last days. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple, Zion, will be established as the highest of the mountains that will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream into it. The highest mountain on earth is Mount Everest. It is 8.8 kilometres high. 
And this tower is above that. So let's say it's 10 k's high. So that, that, that mountain is, is, is going to be 10 kilometers high. What, why is that what's going on in the vision? If it's literal, I can just imagine these poor nations turning up with joy and singing and singing the song. What's the song? Let's go to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of the God of Jacob. And they come inside of Zion and it's now 10 kilometers high. Look, look I've got it on the screen. They, they, God lives here. He's the temple. We're all going to Mount Zion and you turn up and it looks like that. Oh, I forgot my rock climbing gear and oxygen. You, you know what I mean? Like, is, is that supposed to be, is, is, are you supposed to see that problem in what Isaiah is saying? No, of course not. The point isn't that there's literally a 10 kilometer mountain that people make their pilgrimage up now and everybody doesn't ever, ever trek to get to the temple now. The point is, well, I won't tell you the point straight away. What do up and down mean? We have symbolic meanings for up and down. Which way is Queensland? Up. Which way is Victoria? Why? Because of our map. The map isn't objective in any way. I mean, you're one of those people who has, you know, those maps that's upside down and Australia's on top and, you know what I mean? It's just a choice people have made that, that north is up and south is down. Um, which way's the beach? De- depends which beach, right? Which way's Wollongong Beach? Down, up or down is the, you're not allowed to say south, that's too literal. Up, up or down? All right, which way's the city? That way. I think it's up to the city. And I suspect that if you're in North Sydney, it's still up to the city. Is it? I think it is. And I think because up is sometimes is a symbol for moving to what's more central. Do you follow me? It's, it's a symbolic meaning. Um, so let's go up to the city and let's go down to Camden. Because Camden's a hole. Um, <laughs> oh, come on, it's, it's a joke. Um, but, but seriously... Camden Council is moving up to Glorious Oran Park out of the depths of Camden, and that's got to tell you something. In the ancient world, sacred mountains were always up. It didn't matter about direction and it didn't matter about height. They were always up. It's a sacred place. It's where God lives. It is the connection between heaven and earth. God told his people, build that temple on Mount Zion where God will live among you and you will introduce the nations to the world through that temple. So no matter where you stood in relation to Jerusalem, you would say, from north, south, east, west, you'd say, let's go up to the temple. And that's what they say in the Bible. If you were on that mountain I showed you before, Mount of Olives, and you're looking down at the temple, you would say, come, let's go up to the temple. You'd have to, because it's a symbolic direction. In Isaiah's vision, Mount Zion is 10 kilometers high. God is finally exalted over the whole earth. That's what it means. It doesn't matter about the height of the mountain. He is finally above all of creation. The meaning is, in the last days, the God of Israel will finally be exalted and enthroned over his creation, and he will be recognized as such. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 3, because that's where it moves. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so we may walk in his paths. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's been going for some time now. In 33 AD, a man named Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for the sins of the world, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven to rule all of creation. He's enthroned on high. He's exalted all over creation, and he sent out his small band of followers with his message of salvation, calling of people of all nations everywhere to turn to the God of Israel and to obey him. And today there are people of all nations professing the name of Jesus Christ, following the Lord 
the, the God of Israel, saying, let's learn the way of Jesus so we can walk his way. There's still work to be done, by the way. Don't let that kind of be triumphalistic. There's work to be done in Oran Park and in other nations too because there are a lot of people who don't acknowledge the name of Jesus, more who don't than do. But it shows that everybody's invited and we should continue to extend that invitation to come and gather to the one who's enthroned in heaven. Then we get to chapter 2, verse 4. Have a look what it says. It says, He will judge, God will judge, between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They'll beat their swords and plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In Jesus' kingdom, the biggest problem people have is trying to find alternate uses for really pointless objects like swords and guns. Isn't that an extraordinary picture? In the last days, when Jesus returns to bring his kingdom, finally there will be world peace. And yes, I'm using that phrase, world peace. Isn't a, it's such a fluffy idea now. It's almost meaningless as I say it. World peace, what does that even mean? Like, I can't picture it in real terms. It's the sort of thing that people say when they're going for Miss Universe and that sort of thing. It's a meaningless, fluffy statement that impresses judges who aren't looking for much. But that's what the picture that's being painted. There will be no more warfare anymore. There won't be fighting. There will be peace and harmony and, uh, on, on the earth when Jesus comes to bring it. Some people have tried to paint alternative pictures of how world peace could come about, and here's a fairly famous example. John Lennon's song, Imagine, 1971. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. He's, he's got this vision, he's painting a picture and saying to people, wouldn't this be wonderful? Come and be part of this vision of what the future could look like. The solution, of course, for him is get rid of religion, get rid of countries and get rid of possessions and you'll have worldwide peace and harmony, which is uh, stupid. (laughs) Um, It really is. Uh, It's what happens when you mistake a catchy tune for deep philosophical insight. Uh, It's an absolute ridiculous solution. I mean, we've had no countries before. Before we had nation-states, we had city-states and they fought each other. And before we had city-states fighting each other, we had tribes fighting each other. I mean, no countries doesn't solve anything. And we've seen no possessions. Of course, John Lennon didn't want anything to do with communism. He wanted a nice British socialism, whatever the heck that means. But there's no solution there, no religion. The worst atrocities of the last century were driven by atheistic secularist philosophies. And the thought that doing away with religion will solve the world's problems, just... There's no reason to think that's logical in any way, at all. So he doesn't offer a solution at all. All you can do is imagine it. Wouldn't it be nice if the world was that way? And while we're at it and painting realistic pictures of what the future could look like, wouldn't it be nice if the world was Cadbury? It's, it, it, it's that level of solution. It really is. But friends, on the other hand, the picture that Lenin paints has a lot of similarities to what Isaiah 2 is talking about. Look at some of the desires he talks about in his song, of what he wants to see. I underlined a few things. No countries is really a desire for unity among all people. Isaiah promises a unity among nations when they gather to the God of Israel. No killing or dying, that's a peace Jesus offers to bring and promises to bring when he returns. No religion, let's just change that slightly, plus one, one religion. The religion 
devotion to the God of Israel and to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, people will be united because there is one religion, because people are devoted to God's son. And the world will be as one. Yes, it will be one when it's united under Jesus. And there'll be no greed or hunger. There will be a brotherhood of men. We will be sharing all the world. He's longing for the right things, a lot of the right things. But he has very, very wrong answers. So all he can do is imagine it. Wouldn't this be nice? Imagine it. He wants us to desire it even though it cannot and will not ever happen. Now, Isaiah wants to get us to imagine a very different picture of world peace. One that's centred on knowing and serving Jesus, the Son of the God of Israel. One where all people and all nations who come through the judgment, through their faith in Christ, will live in his presence, following his ways, at peace with God and with each other forever. Very, very different picture. I think both are equally hard to imagine personally, the specifics of. The difference, of course, is Lenin wants us to think that we can make the world of his imagining ourselves without any practical way forward. Here's the wonderful news of the Bible. Isaiah says this is a picture of the future of God's imagining and God promises to bring it into being by his own power and planning. People aren't going to bring this about. God will establish this kingdom, this future for his people. So Christians believe that there will be world peace when Jesus returns. There will be. We look forward to the day there will be world peace. By the way, folks, just a, a quick thing. You know what that means? Um, we shouldn't pray just for world peace. It's very strange for Christians to pray for world peace. We should pray for Jesus to return because we know that there won't be peace until Jesus returns and we know that there will be peace when Jesus returns. And Jesus says, pray for my coming and that he'll establish peace on the earth when he comes. So let's not pray for world peace as if it's going to happen now. Let's pray for Jesus to return and establish world peace. Because what he's talking about, Jesus will establish, not us. Now, in sermons, there's supposed to be application, right? Supposed to give you something to do. So I'm told. Um, Well, it's good. I'm not having a go. God calls us to obey him. And so a lot of the time as we read his word, the best response will be, see what God's telling us to do here, we'd best obey him, right? Because he's God and we're his people and he's told us to obey him. Um, this isn't that kind of sermon. And in fact, there's a danger um, where every sermon is supposed to kind of have an application that's me doing something. That's a real danger, folks. It's a real danger because um, far too many Christians, I think, have the attitude of, um, go short on the, the theoretical stuff in the Bible here. Just tell me what to do. The applications, all I want to know. Friends, some of the most important applications, responses to God's word, aren't actually doing anything at all. Sometimes all you're supposed to do is wonder at God and all that he's done for you. Sometimes all you're supposed to do is be thankful. Sometimes all you're supposed to do is be humbly quiet and just trust God more. Be silenced by his amazing majesty and just who God is. There's all kinds of different responses to the Bible, depending on the passage. And those, mass- those messages are horribly distorted if we turn them kind of into a, a to-do list, I suppose. So here's my application for today. And I'm deadly serious. Imagine. What do I mean? Engage in wishful thinking, fantasy? No, imagination isn't about fantasy. It's turning your mind to things that are kind of abstract. They're not the solid, concrete things that are in front of you that I'm touching and moving right now. 
Imagination is just about abstract thinking. It's turning your thoughts, your feelings to, to things that aren't in front of you at this present time. John Lennon sang for people to imagine a world that will never exist. Isaiah, in this passage, and in passages we will read that become more glorious as we go along, calls us to imagine a world that God promises to bring and which will never end. So he's saying direct your hearts and minds to imagine that world. It takes some effort, you know. So it is actually a thing you have to do. You have to think about it. We're not trained to do this, I don't think. It's, it's, it's not wishy-washy, arty kind of thing to do. Advertisers do this all the time. What do advertisers do? They put products in front of you and they say, imagine a possible future world where you will have this thing and you will be happier because you have this thing. And they hit you with that message over and over again and then there's a different ad, same product, from a different angle, saying how you'll be happy in this alternate future in another way because you have this product. They're saying, imagine the world where you have this product. Isaiah is saying, imagine the world you'll be in when God does this for his people. Think about it. Dwell on it. Let it captivate your hearts and your minds. Let it fire up your imagination. Ask the silly questions about, is it literally going to look like this or that? Wonder at what God will do for his people. Imagine it. Because if, if we are just tell me what to do in practice kind of application Christians, let me warn you, ceaseless activity in the Christian life is the path to lifeless, joyless, struggling Christian faith. I'll say it again. Ceaseless activity alone is the path to lifeless, joyless, struggling Christian faith. In place of just doing stuff, what I want to ask you is, when was the last time you were blown away at what God has in store for his people in his kingdom? When was the last time you were blown away by that? Imagining well is a crucial part of what it means to be a Christian. It's part of what the Bible means when it says hope. We long for this future that God's bringing. Hope for the kingdom. Develop longings for it. As I said, I read the book of Isaiah this week and I have been blown away and I expect all the more to as I keep thinking about it and chewing it over. Just the incredible things God has in store for us. And I want to invite you to engage with that as we read and preach through the book of Isaiah. Don't just look for what to do. Think it through. Dwell on it. Think about it at work. Think about it when you're driving. Think through the details. Wonder at the details. And treasure them. I think you'll find it will enrich your faith in ways that will surprise you. Let me pray for us. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for the awesome future that you have in store for your people. Uh, We want to know more about that future. We want to wonder at it more. We want to have capacity to imagine it more in ways that are exciting and uh, set our hearts on fire. Please help us to have that experience as we engage with this last day's teaching, these wonderful things that you have in store for your people in the future. Help us also to heed your judgment and to respond rightly to what that looks like and what it means for how we should respond to you and how we should encourage others to respond to you too. But above all, Father, we want to pray uh, that you would help our faith to be enriched as we dwell on this, uh, this future that you have in store for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.